0: This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Speaking of Asia, a podcast by The Straits Times. This is Ravi Valur, and I'm the paper's senior Asia columnist and associate editor. In this episode, which comes a year after the assassination of Mr. Shinzo Abe, I discuss the impact that Japan's longest-serving post-war prime minister left on his country and the wider region with me today to talk about Mr Abe is Professor Tomohiko Taniguchi of Keio University who was special adviser to Prime Minister Abe's cabinet Prof Taniguchi was also Mr Abe's foreign policy speechwriter for a full 90 months I know him as a man who not only shaped the words Mr Abe spoke to the world but perhaps also a bit of his thinking. Welcome to Speaking of Asia, Prof. Uh, Taniguchi. Thank you for having me. Uh, Prof., it's been a year since uh, Mr. Abe left us. And what would you say is your most enduring, or maybe I should say most endearing, memory of uh, Mr. Abe?
1: Right. I remember Shinzo Abe on three distinct levels. Firstly, he was a thoughtful, empathetic individual who maintained his composure, even in the most extreme circumstances. His childhood friends, who have stayed in touch over the years, often describe him as someone who has scarcely changed since their teenage years. As a leader, he instilled a sense of psychological safety among his aides, colleagues, and subordinates. Secondly, Ravi, he was a rare statesman, keenly aware that economic growth was pivotal. Recognizing, recognizing the challenges faced by an aging country like Japan, he knew that no potential human talent uh, should be overlooked. This is why he emphasized the importance of involving women fully in society. On a personal level, I still remember who he was almost every day, every morning, every night, Ravi. Hardly a day goes by without me thinking always of the late prime minister. So that's the sort of personal aspect. In public, he would be remembered as someone who has done both on the domestic side and on the international side, something very much formative. Internationally, he coined free and open Indo-Pacific and strengthened the U.S.-Japan alliance without which Japan could not provide the security to the region and to the nation. And domestically, he initiated a an important step of rewriting Japan's longstanding social contrast in order to better favor, cater to the growing needs not of the elderly, but of the younger generation. So those would be the things that I would always remember.
0: But there must be some personal memory that you carry with you every day. What would that be, Prof?
1: Because I worked with him as his primary foreign policy speechwriter. It's uh, part of the job description, as you can see, to think of what he is Going through what he is thinking about. So it's been a custom of mind on my end to always imagine what he is doing. That so it's, it's funny because since he was killed, I always feel I still feel that I'm as if I am in a, in a parallel, strange world, something unreal and in the real world, quote unquote. Uh, Shinzo Abe is still alive, so that's a sort of funny feeling. I, I'm trying hard to get rid of.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you remember most about him? Is his eyes, his smile, his voice? What is it that you that that you cannot lose?
1: He was calm, never raised his voice, and never lost his temper. Mm-hmm. And he never changes, depending mm-hmm. on who he is speaking with. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yes, and he was very much thoughtful and kind.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, And he carried his childhood friends throughout his life?
1: Well, it's one piece of evidence that he cherished his friendship. The childhood friends, long-standing friends, almost uh, in unison say that Shinzo Abe has changed very little since his teenage years.
0: That's just wonderful. Could you tell me what is your most precious memory of Shinzo
1: Abe? The most precious memory of Shinzo Abe is what uh, we underwent together, such as winning the uh, host citysip, cityship of the Tokyo 2020 Games or the moment he showed when he delivered a uh, speech in English to the Joint House of the U.S. Congress.
0: mm mm-hmm, mm mm-hmm. That's wonderful. You know, as, uh, as your country's longest post-war prime minister, what are the areas you'd say that Mr. Abe left his imprint most?
1: I would argue that he made his most significant impact in two key areas. Firstly, the U.S.-Japan alliance has grown substantially stronger under, under his leadership. And secondly, he formulated a novel geopolitical, geoeconomic, and geopsychological concept of the Indo-Pacific region, a perspective that has since gained global recognition. And the Quad Military Dialogue mechanism serves as a cornerstone for the FOIP region, for free and open Indo-Pacific region, without bears I would say, uh, close relationships with the leaders of India, Australia, and the US, we likely wouldn't be uh, even discussing such a concept.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, f- nearly five years ago, I went on board the uh, Japanese helicopter ca- carrier Kaga in uh, Changi Naval Base. And that ship was on its way back uh, after sailing all the way to Colombo. Now, it sort of surprised me that uh, a sail through Southeast Asia by a Japanese aircraft carrier caused absolutely no political ripples at all. Given Japan's wartime history towards this region, how did Mr. Abe manage to present Japan as a force for peace so successfully? It
1: was indeed countries such as Vietnam and the Philippines and sometimes Indonesia that urged Japan to play a a more forthcoming role in the provision of security and peace throughout the region. Animosity is there, but only there in a very limited number of countries, namely PRC and Republic of Korea under the Park and uh, Moon administrations.
0: Yeah, but how did he manage to convince the rest of Southeast Asia that Japan is a force for peace? Could you give me a little more insight into that?
1: I don't think Shinzo Abe alone could have done anything like that. It, it's, I would say, a accumulation of Japan's uh, effort in helping build their political economic uh, structures since the end of the Second World War, especially since the, ni- the late 1950s, when actually uh, India, not uh, among the Southeast Asian nations, uh, was the first country that came out and accept Japan's official developmental assistance. Indonesia, over the years, has been the largest, single largest recipient of Japanese official development aid. And by providing those aids to those nations, I think uh, the Japanese people in Japan, pe- the Japanese people, have won trust from those people.
0: Mm-hmm. What about? the relationship with China. You know, aside from the United States, uh, I'd probably think China is your most important bilateral relationship. How did Mr. Abe deal with uh, President Xi Jinping particularly? When you look back, uh, Mr. Xi's rise to power and uh, Mr. Abe's return to power sort of semi-overlapped. Right. Let me just
1: uh, tell you the following. At one point during a uh, meeting between Shinzo Abe and Xi Jinping, a Chinese Communist Party leader made a revealing comment. Mr. Xi stated that had he been born and raised in the United States, he wouldn't have joined the Communist Party USA. Instead, he would have affiliated himself with either the Democrats or the Republicans. This revelation left his entourage stunned and speechless because it it implied that Mr. Xi's uh, interest lay not in Marxism or Maoism, but solely in power and power alone. Xi developed his own unique style of interaction characterized by a relaxed demeanor when conversing with Abe. Conversely, Abe consistently reaffirmed Japan's determination to secure its own territory. He also made it a point to criticize China's treatment of the Uyghurs and Tibetans, actions that invariably incensed Mr. So such being the relationship between the two. But uh, it developed only after sh- she detected that Shinzo Abe will be there for years, and will make Japan even stronger. So the power, something that she admits very well, is the language that President Xi speaks, and President Prime Minister Abe did understand that.
0: Would you say some people believe that Mr. Abe was reflexively anti-China? Was that your impression of him?
1: Not really. He was even more strikingly pragmatic than many people thought. Yeah, he would be. After all, that's that's how any Japanese prime minister handles Japan's delicate and difficult relationships with China. After all, you get Toyota, Nissan, Honda, Uniqlo, all those house bland companies operating in China, selling more goods in China than anywhere else. You get a huge concentrate concentration of school-aged children in major cities such as Shanghai. So you must stay balanced. You must strike a fine balance. I think that's what uh, Shinzo Abe has done. But when it comes to national security, Shinzo Abe continued to make a point to the Chinese leader that there has to be no compromise from the Japanese side.
0: Mm-hmm. I did notice that when Mr. Abe passed, there is a particular personal touch in the, in the message that Mr. Xi Jinping sent. Would you agree?
1: I do agree. That was a striking phenomenon, I'm, I would say. It's also worth noting that the condolence letter Mr. Xi sent to Mrs. immediately following Mr. Abe's passing was empathetic and far from the usual diplomatic formalities he addressed by calling himself I. You know, that's the first person form. And that, I learned, was something uh, rare, uh, voiced from the top leader of the Chinese Communist Party.
0: Very interesting. Tom, I had the privilege of being a co-author with you in a recent book on Mr. Abe, edited by Dr. Sanjay Baru. In the chapter you contributed, you speak of the impact that Mr. Abe had on young Japanese. Uh, Mr. Abe himself was childless. How did he achieve this connect with the young to the extent that he brought so much hope into the future that young people wanted to actually produce children?
1: You hit the crux of the issue that uh, Japan is faced with. Unless and until the future generations have hope for the future, no one could actually anticipate that there will be more children in Japan, which is why Shinzo Abe has always urged the young to be more aspiring, fearful of no failures, because Shinzo Abe himself has had to suffer from colitis, an incurable chronic disease. And he fell a number of times and he rose up again. That's the message that you could fail but you you must rise up again is something that actually uh, uh, Prime Minister Abe stressed in the commencement speech that he gave to a Osaka city-based university. The YouTube entry of the speech has been viewed something like 4.8 million times. I would say, mostly by the nation's youth.
0: Trump, would you give me a sense of the challenges Mr. Abe faced at home? And uh, whether his charisma or his power or the hold that he had on the LDP and the government and on Japan, uh, how did he navigate those challenges, those domestic challenges?
1: As Prime Minister of a parliamentary system, you must win national elections over and over again, only after continuing to win national elections, you could accumulate your political capital with which you could then tackle some of the deep rooted fundamental problems ranging from economic difficulties to whether or not uh, the government, Shinzo Abe, could alter. Japanese Constitution and so on and so forth. So the uh, the fact that he has won five, six national elections speaks volumes. That's number one. And number two, he was clearly aware that without more robust, growing economy, it's going to be senseless for anyone to speak about anything like a stronger army or more robust scientific and education research and so on. Uh, So that's what uh, Shinzo Abe was thinking about. Challenges were a lot in number and he has done a lot, but he has left many things unchanged.
0: Tom, you wrote his foreign policy speeches and I had the opportunity to listen to at least one of them at very close range at the Shangri-La Dialogue when uh, Abisan spoke uh, in 2014. Now, which of the speeches would you consider the most significant foreign policy speech that Abisan made?
1: Shinzo Abe contributed an idea to the world discourse in two ways. Firstly, the proposal of the outlook of Indo-Pacific. He actually put together the Indian Ocean region and the Pacific region. And he proposed a quad concept as a military dialogue among four nations of um, the United States, Japan, Australia, India, four maritime democratic nations. So those being his contributions, he made them mostly through the speeches that he delivered first to the Indian parliament in 2007, and then to the Australian joint house the joint house of australian parliament and finally in april 2015 the joint house of the us congress i would argue that he would be remembered in japanese history as someone that has contributed such an ideas through mostly speeches that he elaborately delivered to those chambers of parliament
0: speeches that you wrote
1: it's an open secret
0: <laughs> tom the Indians seem to think that Mr. Abe had a special soft corner for their country. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Well, that's very much true. It's um, It was striking all the
1: time. Whenever they met each other, I mean, Narendra Modi and Shinzo Abe, they didn't speak each other's language, of course. A limited amount of English, but from the Japanese side. But eye to eye, the closeness was obvious. I wouldn't call them friends. I would call them soulmates. So when uh, Shinzo Abe had to die, immediately after that, Narendra Mori, I gathered, I learned of late, uh, spoke of um, Shinzo Abe with tears uh, in his eyes. And that's um, very much understandable. Um, Narendra Mori has lost one of his greatest friends, uh, when Shinzo Abe passed,
0: mm-hmm. at a recent forum in which uh, we were together, mm-hmm. I got a hint from your remarks that you may be concerned that uh, Japan may be wavering from the part said by Mr. Abe. Did I understand you correctly? And if so, could you expand on your thoughts? Certainly,
1: um, you hit the mark, uh, Ravi. Quad may be one of those usual stuff you use daily, but for Japan, QUAD was a new entry to Japanese lexicon. When Shinzo Abe came back as Prime Minister December 2012, he did not use anything like QUAD. Instead, he used Asia's democratic security diamond, that is to say, if you connect four dots of Hawaii. Tokyo or Yokosuka, Darwin or Perth, and Kolkata, you get a a diamond-shaped relationship. And so that was uh, what Shinzo Abe proposed. From the very beginning, as you can see, the Quad arrangement was so designed as would help build more robust military deterrence network among those nations. But Quad has become a basket to which you could put All eggs ranging from supply chain, resilience to infrastructure, finance, and so on and so forth. That's one. And on the Japanese side, I was struck by the fact that more and more words such as free and open international order has been used instead of free and open Indo-Pacific. So clearly the way in which the Japanese speak about international order is losing A sharper edge, sharper regional focus. That's understandable given the fact that Ukraine is in the European continent and uh, it would be useless for the Japanese foreign minister or prime minister to speak about Indo-Pacific region to President Zelensky, for instance. However, the Indo-Pacific, free and open Indo-Pacific concept was so formed Uh, in accordance with its facilitator, Shinzo Abe, as would uh, incentivize the PRC to perhaps follow the international norms and rules that already exist, if you lose the regional focus, you would also lose the sharper message and signal to be received by the Chinese leaders.
0: Thank you so much for coming and Speaking of Asia, Prof. Tom Taniguchi. Thank you very much for having me, Ravi. And that's a wrap for Speaking of Asia, a podcast series by the Straits Times Asian Insider Channel. I'm Ravi Vallur. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and family. If you'd like to read my articles, we have links in our podcast show notes below.